to Nonprofit Lowdown. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Rhea Wong. In this podcast, I recommend a book, tool, tip, podcast, or resource that has helped me to build a multi-million dollar nonprofit organization. I've done the research, so you don't have to. Let's get started. Hi, podcast listeners. It's Rhea here with you once again with Nonprofit Lowdown. Today, I am sitting here with my friend, Anthony Barrows, who is Managing Director of Ideas 42. Welcome, Anthony. Thank you for having me. So tell me a little bit about what is Ideas 42? Ideas 42 is a 501c3 nonprofit, and our mission is to improve the lives of millions of people around the world using insights from behavioral science. So what that looks like on a day-to-day basis is us working with organizations, typically nonprofits or government agencies, to help improve their processes, their programs, their services, to account for the quirks of human cognition, human choice, and human action in ways that are inspired by disciplines like social psychology or behavioral economics. So what would be an example of that? A good example, based here in New York City, where we're sitting, is some work that we do with the CUNY system. So this is the public higher ed system. And we work with them to improve a variety of outcomes associated with student success. So the community colleges within CUNY have been partners of ours for going on five years. And one of the things that their students face is common across the country, which is a struggle filing the FAFSA, which is the form that you need to access federal financial aid. And so we know that people value financial aid, and particularly if they've filed the FAFSA before, we know that it's something they want and need. But continuing students really do struggle at high rates. So we're talking 40% or more to refile the FAFSA in their second year and beyond. And so we know that some of these students aren't filing the FAFSA because they don't intend to return, but it can't be that many. And so what we've done, because we can't affect what the Federal Department of Education does, unfortunately, unfortunately, is to work within the CUNY system and the touch points that they already have with their students in this case, things like emails and text messages that they send to them, to make those messages clearer about what it is that students have to do to file the FAFSA and why they ought to, which is to continue getting their Pell Grants when they have to, and to direct them towards some help if they're struggling to get it done. And so rather than just one email, we send a series of both emails and text messages to students that are continuing at CUNY into their second year or beyond, And what we've seen is a consistent increase in the number of students filing FAFSA. So anywhere from, you know, 5 to 10% increases. And so if we were to scale this up across the entire CUNY system, just within the community colleges, we're talking about something like an additional $28 million of aid flowing into the pockets of students and into the CUNY system itself through a series of just texts and emails that cost about $2.50 per student. So Ideas42 is sort of working on the gap between the things that we know we should be doing and the things that we actually do. Mm-hmm. And we describe that as the intention-action gap. So we all have these intention-action gaps in our lives. Maybe we know that we should be exercising more or eating a little healthier. Maybe we want to read more books than we do. We have to take medication to manage some kind of condition. And yet we systematically and over and over again fail to convert those intentions that we have into actions. And it's not, in the way that many people imagine, a problem of us being unmotivated or us being ignorant or having some kind of character flaw or something wrong with our values. 
it really is just a feature of the way that our brains work. That when something is difficult, we tend to procrastinate. If something isn't salient to us in the moment, we tend to forget it or, or overlook it. Or if we're stressed out or under some kind of duress, cognitively or emotionally or otherwise, we really fixate on the thing that's urgent and tend to ignore other things that are important, but just not an emergency. So you and I were talking before this interview started about implicit bias in the hiring process. So I'd love to get to that because I assume implicit bias is one of these human quirks that you also think about. Indeed. And so the, just to differentiate between implicit and explicit bias, and all of us as human beings have some of both kicking around in our heads, explicit bias is when we would consciously name some kind of bias that we have toward or against something out in the world. So I'm a Bostonian, and so I've got a very explicit bias against Yankee fans, for example, which is tough as a person yeah, that lives in New York. Yeah, I was going to say, living in New York <laughs> may not be so easy. <laughs> but that is a thing that I, that I know about myself and that I'm not ashamed to admit. It's just like a feature of my identity and like my in-groups and out-groups. feature, not a bug. Indeed. So we all have these explicit biases, but we also maybe have implicit biases too. And people have probably heard this talked about in the media and it's one of the ways that a lot of folks experience and are affected by things like their race or ethnicity or gender or other forms of their identity being devalued in our society. And so even people that have explicitly an anti-racist position, let's say, or a feminist position that they would espouse in the world, they might still be plagued by implicit bias where they might be implicitly afraid of people of color, or they may implicitly devalue the input or the worth of people that identify as women, let's say. Even for people of color and women, this can be a thing that manifests, right? Where if you look at, for example, the implicit attitudes test online, it tests your reaction time when you look at people with different, what we would call racial features phenotypically, and see how easy it is for you to associate you know, a white looking face with a negative word. And even for people of color, it's a lot easier for them to associate white faces with good ideas than it is for black faces, let's say. So this implicit bias has nothing to do with being like an explicit bigot, let's say, and everything to do with the attitudes and beliefs and stereotypes that all of us absorb living in the society that we do. And so, of course, implicit bias is going to manifest itself when it comes to something like hiring. Because if you get signals from the environment about, you know, what black folks or Latino folks are like, you're going to absorb them whether you want to or not. And that might subtly affect the way that you select a resume for an interview, let's say. And so it's really important for us to be aware of this and to cook up ways to de-bias our decisions when it comes to things like that. So as somebody who is overseeing hiring here at Ideas42 and as someone who is obviously very interested in a diverse workforce, what have you done in order to de-bias the process as much as possible, given that we are working with human beings? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So first, let me offer the disclaimer that I've actually handed over the mantle of hiring lead. Oh, congratulations. Uh, yes. <laughs> Thank you. So our chief operating officer has absorbed that responsibility for me in the last six months, which is a blessing, even as it's a melancholy thing for me to hand over, but that's life. However, having been here for five years, I've energetically worked toward reducing bias in our hiring practices. And so there's a variety of things that we've done as far back as, you know, when we started the organization or before I even got here, 
So the organization's 10 years old. I've only been here for five and a half of those 10 years, so I can't take credit. But there's some straightforward practices that we've adopted, and folks can read about them in the research of scholars like Iris Bonet, that are aimed at reducing the effects of these kinds of biases on hiring practices. So I'll just name a few that we've done over the years. One very simple thing that people can do if they're concerned about how bias might affect hiring decisions is to evaluate candidates on the basis of just their experience by taking away some of the signifiers that might affect their choice or their evaluation. So an example of this might be blinding names or addresses off of resumes so that you're not thinking, oh, well, this person lives really far away and how are they ever going to commute here? Oh, this person is a woman or, oh, this person has this ethnic marker in their name or whatever. But instead say, oh, I see this person has been an accountant for X number of years, or I see this person has managed this dollar figure in terms of budgets. And that's the kind of stuff that actually matters when it comes to performance and not these other things. So simply being more objective in the way that you're assessing a candidate's qualifications is one great way to do it. And part of that can be achieved by eliminating some of those markers that are totally extraneous to performance. And the other part of it has to be having a standard way that you actually assess a candidate's skill fit for the position that they're hiring. And so for every position that we post, we have a series of rubrics that are scored and standard in terms of a variety of things we expect candidates to have. So do they have the years of experience that we're looking for? Do they have the training in, let's say, statistical analysis or behavioral science that we're looking for? And so that's all as a, that's about as objective as you can get when it comes to assessing a resume. And so that standard rubric scoring of candidate fit in terms of skill is really important. And then there's a series of other things that you can do when it comes to things like interviewing as well. Yeah, say more about that because I think where the real subjectivity comes in is the face-to-face. And, you know, interestingly, on the podcast, I've had a communications coach who's talked about the fact that she works largely with tech startups. And she was saying that of late, a lot of her clients are receiving either gendered or race-based feedback Mm. about their communication. Mm. And so really, it's actually not about their communication, Mm -hmm. much more about the toxic soup in which Mm -hmm. they're swimming. Mm -hmm. So tell me how you've been able to to the extent that you have been able to de-bias the interview process? Yeah, really good question. And again, let me offer a caveat before I begin that this style of approach, using behavioral science to try to eliminate or reduce some of these biases, is limited by the fact that we're all human. And so... I would never make a claim that, like, we've got some kind of magic beans that will eliminate all kinds of bias. It's impossible. But you can reduce the probability that those things are materially affecting the way that you're making decisions and assembling a team. So with that caveat, one way that we've chosen to approach debiasing the interview process is by doing something called a structured interview. And so, again, this is rooted in having a rubric that's tied to the skills we know that candidates need with a clear scoring structure attached to it. And then and only then would we then build questions on to, that are designed to answer whether or not the candidates have the skills that we know they need to do the job. And then we would structure the interview process in such a way that every interviewer asks the same questions of and every interviewee in the same order 
and then is assessing them on this predetermined scale. So, so that's like the heart of what we try to do. And built into that, there's a variety of ways that we ask some of those questions that are meant to probe for people's actual experiences and therefore the actual skills that they would bring to the table by asking them questions rooted in things that are on their resume. So experiences that we know that they've had, at least according to their self-report, where we try to get them to walk us through like how they've produced deliverable X or what their experiences were in terms of managing a team or something like that. So we try to stay rooted in fact, linked back to things that are on the resume that we have on hand, and we ask people to you know, reflect on things that they've actually done, not to speculate about things that they might do in the future. And each of those questions is, again, rubric scored in a standard way, and most importantly, tied to things that actually matter when it comes to doing the job we're asking them to do. And so before the interview started, we talked about the fact that since you've been here, you've seen an uptick in diversity, both racial, ethnic, and gender Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. here at Ideas42. How much of that do you attribute to this process, and how much of it do you attribute to other factors like recruitment? Good question. I I refuse to give an estimate on the causal (laughs) factors of any of those things because I just don't, we haven't done that analysis. But I will say that the diversity that I think we've seen increase, if I were guessing, since I haven't done this analysis and don't even know how I would start, (laughs) if I were guessing, though, I'd say it has a lot more to do with our very proactive outreach to invite in different kinds of candidates than the ones we were typically getting. And so this started by just going outside of our normal recruiting stomping grounds, So when I started, we almost exclusively recruited at the Ivies, and this was based on what I think is a completely false premise, which is that highly elite schools do a really good job of screening in excellent candidates. And so, you know, we're in 2019. We lived through Aunt Becky's, you know, admission scandal most recently, right? Mm -hmm. And, like, we just know it isn't true, you know? Like, one of the biggest affirmative action programs is, like, rich white people sending their descendants to the same schools that they went to regardless of their qualifications and like rich people buying their children and grandchildren away into the institution. So what? You mean the Trump children didn't deserve to go to Penn? <laughs> or, or, or Harvard or wherever, right? Jared Kushner, I hear, was not a stellar student at Harvard Law School, but let's, let's set that aside for the moment. <laughs> so we have to first know that we can't rely on the eliteness of an institution as an effective marker for whether someone is going to be a good employee. So I was able to get the our institution, Ideas 42, to like cast a wider net mm-hmm. and to think about how we could rely on sources other than the like six schools that we tended to recruit from to be feeders for us candidate-wise. And another thing that we've done is to have very proactive outreach to some of the affinity groups on the campuses that we do go recruiting in, where we say, hey, look, like we're really, we value having a heterogeneous team. And that means a variety of things, not just gender and race and ethnicity, but also socioeconomic status and nation of origin and the discipline that you've been trained in and the lived experience that you bring to the table in terms of where you've lived and the systems that you've interacted with, let's say. And so You know, we make a real effort to say that stuff out loud and to go to the places where we would expect people that would bring something new to the table in terms of our workplace, you know, labor composition to say, hey, we want you here, you know. 
Another thing that we've started doing the last few years, which I think is really important to us here in terms of having a workforce that represents the communities we work in, is to have introduced an internship program. So we used to have an internship program for undergrads that just replicated the same stuff we were doing in our on-campus recruiting. So we'd have, you know, the Harvard College student who really was going to go into finance and but wanted to spend the summer slumming it with a nonprofit, and so they would hang out with us for a couple months. So we've kind of broken the back of that thing and reintroduced a new internship program that still does draw students from the fancy schools, but we draw them in through a very specific channel, which is through three partner institutions. So the Posse Foundation, LIDA, and Prep for Prep. And each of those organizations provides channels into school for students that come from underrepresented backgrounds. And so this is race, ethnicity, as well as socioeconomic status. And that's basically our only source of associates now Mm. is students from those three programs that successfully completed an internship with us and then are invited to return the following summer after they graduate as associates. So let's talk about socioeconomic diversity for a second because I often think we don't talk enough about that when we talk about diversity, but we, I mean, we know that there's clearly a Venn diagram between race, ethnicity, diversity, and, and socioeconomic diversity. And so I'm wondering what specific practices do you have around ensuring socioeconomic diversity? Like we just talked about one before this interview started about very clearly putting salary compensation on the job description, because frankly, if you're coming from a certain socioeconomic background, you have to know exactly how much you're going to get paid. Another, I would imagine, is paying internship because you need to make money for school or money for life. That's a necessity. What other things have you done? Yeah, so we actually don't have a fully transparent salary structure publicly available, but we do have a fully transparent salary structure once you're invited to work here. And so everybody at the organization is super clear about what everyone else makes. Mm. And when people are hired, we peg them on the basis of their title and their level of experience at like a certain place. And we think that this achieves some, at least some gender equity in terms of pay. And so like, no, everyone understands that. And we think it's important. And I think more or less keeps us honest. And we don't negotiate with people on their salaries because we know that they're are populations, particularly women, that are much less likely to even think about negotiating. And so like when typically white men come in and they want to negotiate, we just say, no, <laughs> we do not negotiate, sorry. <laughs> here's, here's the like transparent reason we assigned you to the salary and like you're welcome to not take it. <laughs> Anthony, it's so funny. So of late, I've been talking a lot about, especially with my, my fellow women of color, about what would Chad do? Chad being, you know, uh-huh. yes, the- yes privileged white man who expects that he deserves a salary raise or deserves special consideration. And I yes. think, like, but the fact that I have to consciously ask myself, like, well, what would Chad do in this situation is interesting. The ways in which we're socialized, especially as a, an Asian female. Let's change tack a little bit. So it's one thing to... Can, can I back up and say yeah. something about one thing yeah, you mentioned, please. though, which is the internships. Yeah. We really do believe that paid internships are critically important. Yes. And so we actually pay our interns the same salary as an entry-level associate for the weeks that they're with us. Mm. And we make them an offer to return to our organization as associates like at or near the conclusion of their time with us. Mm. And so we actually think this is a really important thing for us to do 
so that they can go into their final year of college secure in the knowledge that they have like a pretty decent paying job with like really nice benefits waiting for them. And then if they end up wanting to like go to grad school or they want to take some different job, that's totally fine. But we think that this is a way to return some cognitive bandwidth to young people in their final year of school where they don't have to sweat it. Mm-hmm. They're not having to like worry about whether they'll get a job or where it might be. Mm-hmm. If they still want to do some of that, that's awesome. But they know that they can come back to us. And we think that that probably helps them in their academic achievement and probably just feels better too. So yeah. totally agreed that like paid internships are critically important and having predictability, particularly if you come from a lower income background or family where, you know, precarity is a fact of life. You know, we really try to mitigate some of that stuff. And we've got pretty compelling salary and benefits packages for a nonprofit, I think, mm-hmm. as well. So, yeah, yeah it's interesting because two guests ago, my friend Clara Chow was on and she was talking about, what did she call it, income smoothing or fi- mm. financial smoothing and trying to pave the path for families that are living very close to the edge mm-hmm. and where mm-hmm. one little incident can really throw them into throw them into sort of a tailspin. Let's talk a little bit about, so it's one, so you've gone out to recruit yes. a diverse population. You've redesigned your hiring process to make sure that those folks are getting in and getting offers. What do you do as far as retention? Because we all know that it's one thing to hire folks. It's another thing for them to want to stay. And I do think that there's a question around tipping point too, which is like, if I'm a candidate of color and I go online and I see that it's predominantly white people on the website, I may not necessarily take the offer if I feel like maybe this is not the place for me or there aren't other people who are like me. (laughs) And so what practices have you considered as far as DEI hiring and retention Mm -hmm, practices? mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's a really good question. And I have the same question when I first entertained the notion of working here. We're a radically smaller organization (laughs) and a lot more homogenous in terms of our workforce composition. Like, is this a place for me? Will, Will I fit? And so it's almost impossible for us to measure the effects of that surfing across a website. Mm-hmm. Because we don't know how many people then just choose not to even apply. Mm, that's um, a good point. So I, I don't even know how to estimate the magnitude of effect that like literally a different, differently composed workforce has on applicants as well as retention. But I think it's really important. Representation matters. And so one of the things that we're really leaning into lately is making sure that we have a more racially and ethnically diverse senior team. And it's one that we are like far away from our goal, but that we think is going to improve retention in the long run. If we have, you know, folks that an incoming associate can look up and say, "Ah, I see a path to VP or managing director here because someone that I can identify with in some way is up there doing it. And I can like lean on them for mentoring or like, you know, look look to them for, you know, as an exemplar of what I might be able to do next. So so that's like one thing that we're working on and we haven't figured it out yet, but that's one of our goals. And then in terms of like overall retention, I think that in terms of our age cohort, one of the things that we, because we're rather young, like we're, I think our, our median age is like below 30 probably, (laughs) which is an interesting place to be. But nonetheless, one of the things that we really needed to fix when I first got here and some of our folks that are now in leadership positions, but then were junior staff brought up and we dealt with 
were things like parental leave policies. Mm -hmm. And so we've instituted a pretty family-friendly parental leave policy. I think we give three months paid for folks when they acquire a child through birth or some other means. <laughs> I'm, I'm an adoptive parent, so I, I know that people come into being parents in lots of different ways. So, But in any case, regardless of their gender, indeed, so like, and we really push fathers and mothers to take that time that they need to go be with their children because we know that it's important for everyone involved. You know, we have a lactation room. We do breast milk shipping. We have a really nice paid time off policy. So we give people two days per month of paid time off, exclusive of sick time, which is separate, exclusive of the 10 federal holidays and the week that we shut down between Christmas Eve and New Year's. So we try to make it family friendly in that way. And not just for parents, but for anyone that has family members that they want to go spend time with, including maybe a parent or another relative that they need to be caregivers for. And we're really flexible about the way that people get their work done. So we encourage people to work from home if they have to, and we encourage flexible schedules. So in a lot of ways, this is a DEI response to our demographic cohort of employees. Because when we grab people out of, let's say, undergrad or grad school, we know that sometime in the next five years, they're probably going to want to be starting families. And we need to create an environment that's family-friendly. And that supports people in doing the really hard and rigorous work that we do at Ideas 42 without having to sacrifice participating fully in their family life. So I think what is interesting to loop this back to the hiring process is that we think about hiring people who are culture fit. And of late, we've been talking about, no, it's actually not about culture fit. It's about being additive to the culture. Mm. And so I think questions around policies and procedures can sort of inherently create some tension because I think change can be hard. And, mm -hmm. and I think it takes enlightened leadership to really hold that tension of change, but change in a way that works for the business or works for the organization. Mm -hmm. So how do, you, how do you make sure that you're always maintaining that tension? Yeah, I think that it's really hard. And we are at an inflection point in the size of our organization that makes this question doubly difficult. So not only are we continuing to want to push the boundaries of like who it is that we hire in such a way that it frankly becomes less male, less white, less upper middle class and above, less U.S. born, like, you know, it just becomes different than what a typical consulting firm would look like, you know. As we push those boundaries, we need to adjust the way that the organization runs. And the way that we talk to each other and treat each other. But we're also just growing. So we're like 120. And we've been growing by leaps and bounds. So when I started in 2013, so it'll be six years this fall, we were 25 people. And so by the time this my sixth year comes around, we will have quintupled in size, which is an insane rate of growth. <laughs> and so managing the cultural expectations and what counts as fit as you diversify your workforce, but also while you m literally multiply your workforce and also as you disperse your workforce, because we're now about 40 or 50 people in New York, 40 or 50 people in DC, 10 people in Boston, 10 people in San Francisco, 
like five people in Mexico City, five people in Delhi, and like a handful of other people smattered around the world. As we disperse geographically, it also becomes harder to create cohesion among all of those people to say nothing of the knowledge management challenges. So I wish that I had a better answer for you about how you hold the tension. I think the one thing that we do a pretty good job of, and that seems to have been working reasonably well for us, is to focus pretty heavily on the mission of the organization. So if we're doing a good job of creating the right kind of culture that's adaptable, that people can feel included in, and that can you know, adapt itself over time, it has to be premised on everyone being really committed to creating positive social impact using insights from behavioral science. Mm -hmm. If everyone can get on board with that and keep rowing in that direction, I think we can weather a lot of storms and tolerate a lot of change and a lot of difference because that's a pretty unifying force. So I think that's probably my best answer. Do you ever have that issue where, you know, it's like the, the cobbler's children have no shoes? Because I often think it's easy to fix problems outside of the organizations, but then when it comes to your own organization, it, it's like how you can't declutter your own house, but you can declutter everyone else's. Do you fall into that issue of... Yeah, we're not robots, so yes. <laughs> <laughs> but applying behavioral science to one's own work. So we've got like we've got a variety of values that we try to live by, and one of them is the behavioral lens. You're using the behavioral lens to, you know, in every part of our work. And so this is part of the reason that I described our hiring process and the way that I did, because we think that you should hire behaviorally, and we think that you should evaluate existing employees behaviorally, which is why we have a kind of rubric structured thing there as well. And so we do our best <laughs> to apply this stuff internally and we fail at it because we're human, you know? So some things that we do are really good and are like excellent, I think, at building in behavioral insights to creating the kind of environment that we would want in an ideal circumstance. So we do a pretty good job of building in automated reminders to do certain things. And, you know, the organization gives people nudges and timely reminders about, hey, make sure you're changing your transit deduction. And, oh, by the way, you're coming up in the next quarter against your vacation cap. Make sure you take some time off. We do a pretty good job of, like, doing positive social norms messaging around things like, it's totally okay if you want to go to grad school or if you want to like think about getting another job, come talk to leadership. And, you know, we'd rather be able to plan for those kinds of things. So like there's a variety of things that I think we do really well. And then there's other things that like are very perplexing that a behavioral science organization can't figure out, like the knowledge management thing. Oh so, God, knowledge management. That's a whole other thing. It's a bear, right? It, it's so hard. So you would think that a group of people that spend every waking work hour thinking about how social psychology and, you know, various cognitive sciences, like behavioral economics, how these things tell us about how easy it is for us to forget things and how just having information is not enough in terms of inspiring action. You'd think that we'd be much better <laughs> at like figuring out an easy to navigate way to like have people take information that they've already got and categorize it in such a way that makes it easy to find and make sure that people don't rebuild the wheel every time they're trying to make a project plan or 
create a budget or something and like we, we just haven't figured those things out yet yeah i when i was an ed i had this grand plan of like we're going to hire a library scientist and we're going to catalog all of the knowledge that we have into a system and it's going to be beautiful guess what never happened mm-hmm. <laughs> but i had i had aspirations one thing that you said i want to go back on for a second when you say behavioral interview questions what do you mean by that yeah so behavioral interview questions are questions in interpersonal interaction that are rooted in how you actually behave and how you actually behaved uh, in the past. So that's how we orient them. So again, starting with like, what are the skills and talents and competencies that we need a person in role X to display? And so let's just say that it's something like a statistical analysis or whatever, right? So we know that associates need to do, need to run stats So instead of saying, hey, yes or no, do you know how to run a regression? It's very easy for someone to say, yeah, Yeah. sure, I could do that. (laughs) Instead, we say, so it says here that you are familiar with the Stata package. Can you talk to me about a project in one of these roles on your resume where you've used Stata? Mm -hmm. Describe to me what the research question was and the techniques that you used to try to answer it, including whatever you had to do to clean the data set. Mm-hmm. So that's like, what did you do and how did you do it question. That's very tightly associated with a skill that we know to be important for the role that the person's applying for. So that, that's just one example of how a behavioral question could work. So that's a technical behavioral question. Yes. What about a non-technical question? What if it's more about, you know, how one behaves in a workplace situation? Yes, yes, yes. So we ask people questions about, for example, how they've persuaded people of a difficult ask in a work environment, let's Mm -hmm. say. So, you know, again, pick one of these things that's on your resume. Mm -hmm. And I want to hear about a time that you had something that you were trying to get done, some, you know, new project that you wanted to launch, whatever it is, where it required you to convince someone that had more power than you that this was the right thing to do. Just tell me what the ask was, who the people were that you had to convince, and what were the techniques that you used to get it done. Mm-hmm. Those are all the questions I have. Any last thoughts as we sign off? This has been super interesting, and I hope that folks listening get some good ideas about how they can revamp their own hiring, recruitment, and retention practices. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess I would encourage people to check out a lot of the resources that we have online at our website. So ideas42.org is where you can find us. I'll put it in the show notes too. Perfect. And if you want a good follow on Twitter, we're at Ideas42. We're on Instagram as well, but I don't know how that works. So you can, I'm sure, find us linked up on the website somewhere. <laughs> so those are those are the things that I would suggest. You know, we, we work in a variety of areas. So like if you work in a health field, an education field, financial health, there's bound to be something of interest on on our website that you can learn from. And we put out reports on all of our projects so that there's stuff that people can access for free and learn about. And the other thing that I would say, because we're talking to the nonprofit community, is that for those of you who work here in the five boroughs of New York, I want you to be aware of our Behavioral Design Center. So this is a grant-funded program where we're really trying to work with especially human services and civic engagement-oriented nonprofits in the five boroughs, to help them absorb some of the stuff that we know about behavioral science and about how people choose and how people act so that people can reimagine the way that they structure their programs or their intake processes, the way that they communicate 
with their clientele and with their staff. So we run free workshops for people that are staff of nonprofits in the five boroughs about once every four to six weeks on topics like how does behavioral science help us understand people's experiences when they live in poverty? Or how do we use behavioral science principles to make effective communications? And we also do some consulting projects for free of charge to the nonprofits, again, for folks here in the city. So ideas42.org slash BDC, and you can learn more about that. Awesome. Free resources, lots of juicy research. And actually, I'd love to have you come back, because we didn't even get to talk about your projects. Thanks so much. It's so fun to talk to you. Great. Thanks for having us.